My name is Egbert Perry, and I'm the founder and CEO of the Integral Group, and this is Create the Village, a podcast that provides a platform where leaders from the private, public, and nonprofit sectors come together to speak candidly about the challenges facing American cities. The last two decades have been chock full of social and political unrest. Some of the turbulence was initiated by events like Katrina and now COVID-19. But I dare say most of the disturbance was caused by other political, economic, and social factors. I think of 9-11 and the resulting wars, Hurricane Katrina and the government's response to it, the Great Recession of 2008 and the mortgage crisis that followed, numerous school shootings, seemingly endless high-profile killings of unarmed African Americans, and deep partisan rancor and divisions within our politics. Arguably, these events are reflections of political, social, and economic policies. Historically speaking, and setting aside the naturally occurring events of Katrina and COVID. When you're in the middle of it, it's difficult to discern between systemic social change and the on the belly of our social, economic, and political systems. Of course, some events are outside our immediate influence. Hurricanes and pandemics may fall into that category. Other events, including responses to acts of nature, are fully within the power of our governmental and community leaders. As we're managing through COVID-19, it's important to remember that in 2005, most of the people of the Gulf region who were acted upon or neglected were neither influential nor empowered. We must remember and learn from those events. In recent days, there's been a push to open the economy as soon as possible, even though the cases of infection and death are rising by the day. As an entrepreneur and believer in American enterprise, I am as anxious as anyone to get COVID-19 behind us. However, there's a legitimate debate as to the right time or circumstances that should govern the reopening of our economy. In the absence of a national strategy, each state has its own timeline and approach to reopening. And adding to the complexities, governors and mayors, sometimes within the same state, are not always on the same page. So I want to draw your attention to the domino effect of the restarting of the economy. Since the pandemic arrived, frontline health workers, grocery store clerks and cashiers, meat packers and food service employees, and many others have continued to work. Many government employees have transitioned to telecommuting and continued to work. Educators and school systems have developed online curricula and in most cases done an exceptional job given 120 days ago, very limited infrastructure to support remote teaching existed. What's unspoken so far in the conversation about restarting the economy is the impact on our children. That is, the economy cannot restart if school-aged children have no place to go during the workday. 
parents cannot return to work without a plan for their children. And that means that children must return to school if the economy is to restart at any meaningful scale. Consider whether we can rely on a third grader to social distance on a school bus, in the classroom, or in the hallway. What are the consequences of sending our children back to school? Does returning to work too soon result in a child who eventually develops a fever? And then do you have to leave work again? If your child and then you are exposed to COVID-19, does that require you to self-quarantine? To circle back for a moment, Hurricane Katrina was a naturally occurring event, but the local, state, and federal government responses to the storm were political, economic, and social. The lasting impact is carried by the people of New Orleans, but the responsibility rests at the feet of the people who held influence and power. I've started thinking about the systemic changes we'll experience from this pandemic, and I wanted to know what others are thinking. I spoke with two researchers about how COVID-19 is impacting our educational system. Specifically, I spoke with Drs. Ray Hart and Harris Cooper. Here are the conversations. Okay, so Ray, why don't we start by having you tell the listeners what it is you do every day as a researcher? Well, first of all, thank you all for having me. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your podcast. Um, my name is Ray Hart, and I'm the director of research with the Council of the Great City Schools. And I have the opportunity of working with 76 of the nation's largest urban school districts. And we provide supports to those school districts in a number of different ways. We support uh, the superintendents, the school boards, and their governance of the schools. We support uh, chief academic officers, uh, research directors, uh, transportation directors, those who are responsible for food services, etc. Uh, so we allow them to connect with each other. Uh, we support them in implementing best practices uh, across the schools. And really, our focus is on improving student achievement and student outcomes for some of the nation's most impoverished students. Uh, and particularly, uh, our school districts serve a large number of African-American, Hispanic students in poverty. And we look forward to working with them on an annual basis to improve student outcomes for students. Ray, if I were having this conversation 120 days ago, I'd probably ask you to provide me with your analysis of how children in urban school districts are doing. I'd likely ask you to tell me what the data are telling you about the proficiency levels between low-income children who attend traditional public schools, charter schools, and private school. But 120 days ago, children were still attending school. You're a researcher, and you dig into the data and think about urban schools. What's on your mind these days? <laughs> well, clearly, uh, the world is a very different place than it was 120 days ago. Uh, I think in early March, if we had had this conversation, I would have shared with you uh, that the reading performance uh, and math performance of students in traditional public schools, charter schools, as well as private schools uh, was not significantly different. Um, those schools really, for, for students in poverty, were quite similar. Um, for example, 
last year that private school estimates were available for students on the National Assessment of Educational Progress, uh, the percentage of free or reduced price lunch students who were proficient on the fourth grade math assessment was about 23.1%. In charter schools, it was about 23.8%. And in private schools, it was about 16.1%. Uh, so the, the performance, particularly of students in poverty, wasn't very different at that time. As a matter of fact, many studies, uh, such as the Opportunity Scholarship Program Evaluation, which is a study that looked at um, poverty students, students in poverty receive vouchers to attend private schools. Uh, those students actually showed significantly negative impacts in mathematics. Um, and uh, though it wasn't significant, they were also negative impacts in reading. Uh, there was another study on uh, school sector and academic achievement that concluded that when both student and school demographic differences were controlled for, public school uh, means were significantly higher for public school students than those of Catholic and conservative Christian schools and statistically equal to other types of schools like charter schools. So the real issue uh, across the country was educating students of poverty uh, and ensuring that uh, those students uh, received a sound investment in their education. And that's one of the things that as a country we need to continue to do at that time. Clearly now uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic, a number of those differences, those struggles for students in poverty have been exaggerated. And um, we're in a very different place now than the country was 120 days ago. Uh, as I understand it, just last week, your organization sent a rather ominous analysis and forecast to Congress concerning the impact the COVID pandemic will have on our national school system. I believe I heard that correctly. What exactly did you tell Congress? We really focused on sharing with Congress two uh, critical issues. Uh, the first of which is we wanted to share the efforts of our staff and teachers across our member districts who have really stepped up to the challenge of continuing to provide supports for uh, the roughly 9 million students that we serve across the country. Uh, they've served millions of meals to students uh, staff have really stepped up to try to make sure that thousands of devices have been distributed. And so we wanted to make sure that uh, Congress was well aware of the support and the efforts that are also being made in public schools to ensure that families uh, uh, and students have received meals, have continued to learn, instruction is continuing to happen. And even despite the fact that some of those individuals have contracted COVID-19, uh, a few unfortunately have passed away, our schools and our school systems are stepping up to really ensure that millions of kids, particularly those in poverty, are receiving the supports they need during this time. So we wanted to make sure Congress understood that. Secondly, we wanted to address the fact that to date uh, in the initial CARES Act, Congress uh, allocated about $13 billion to public schools or to education in general, as for public schools, K-12, as well as higher education. And the states are able to divvy those funds up as they see fit. But we wanted to make sure we address the fact that they needed to make an investment in public schools as well. And we asked Congress to support an additional $200 billion investment in educational stabilization funds, uh, funds for uh, students with disabilities, 
uh, funds related to E-rate to support technology improvements and other needs uh, that are necessary for schools during this time. And I think the most important thing uh, which is really the budget shortfalls that are coming down uh, the pike. Schools are funded by local, both state and local dollars, uh, mostly pre predominantly uh, sales tax, property tax, things of that nature, all of which are going to take a significant hit uh, as a function of our uh, stay at home orders. So our sales tax revenues, our state revenues are going to drop significantly. During the downturn, the economic downturn in 2008, Congress invested a significant amount, uh, billions of dollars into education to really offset those losses. And to date, they haven't made similar investments in public education, which would be necessary. So one of the things that we noted uh, is uh, the catastrophe that may potentially happen if Congress doesn't make an investment in public schools to shore up those losses, which may result, which will likely result in hundreds of thousands of teachers and staff across school systems being furloughed or laid off. So it, it really is incumbent upon Congress. We know they've taken care of small businesses. They've looked at uh, taking care of a number of different entities across the country, uh, hospitals, things like that. But public schools are really uh, on the forefront of educating and ensuring that our students and the next generation of students can be productive citizens. And a, a drop off in that investment is going to significantly impact the country for years to come. Okay, so at the risk of being political, I'm not asking you to be political, what role has the U.S. Department of Education played in response to the pandemic? Well, I just discussed uh, the impact of uh, lost revenues for states and localities in terms of uh, funding to school districts. And at this time, you know, we would hope that the Department of Education would uh, help support uh, schools, students in poverty across the country. Uh, last Friday, one of the interesting things that the Department of Education did is actually provided guidance to states uh, where traditionally funds that come from the U.S. Department of Education when they're asked to be allocated according to the Title I formula, which focuses on supporting students who are in poverty across the country, those funds are distributed to students in need. And the guidance that was provided by the Department of Education last week actually encouraged states and districts to provide funding to all of the private school students across the country. Uh, so essentially working to ensure that not just students in poverty receive funding, but some of the most affluent uh, students in the country receive funding as well. And essentially uh, at a time when the Department of Education really needs to support those students who are in poverty, those families who are most troubled across the country, they're actually taking money from those students and, and providing it to more affluent students, literally uh, robbing from the poor to give to the rich. So uh, it's a time where we would hope that the Department of Education would be supportive of the efforts that are being made that I just discussed earlier to support kids in poverty, and they're doing quite the opposite. You know, all the stuff you just said has me really thinking about a lot of things that I never thought about before. So when you talk about something like social distancing, what practical impact does that have on the school system? I think about classrooms, transportation, teaching staff, etc. 
So we've been working very closely with uh, our superintendents, our transportation and facilities directors to begin the process of planning for students to return to school, but it's going to be a challenge. We've also been monitoring how the return to school has impacted other countries. There are several countries, uh, Denmark, Israel, some others who have returned to school. And uh, the interesting challenge with that will be many teachers, uh, so many staff will actually, or in those countries have struggled to return. So some of those countries have actually encouraged staff who are 65 and older or staff who have pre-existing conditions not to return to the classroom. Uh, as you can imagine, that would create significant issues for uh, continuing to staff schools in a way that uh, ensures that classrooms and students can continue social distancing. The other challenge in some of those classrooms is coming up with alternatives for schedules. The classrooms are built for 20, 22, 24 students in a class to maintain social distancing, keeping students six feet apart. Now you've got to uh, shrink those class sizes significantly, which means a significant increase in the number of classrooms, which many school buildings can't handle. So a number of our schools are thinking about alternative schedules where students, for example, may uh, attend school. Some one group of students may attend school on Tuesday and Thursday. Another group of students may attend school on Monday and Wednesday with the alternative times being distance learning. So kind of a hybrid model of face to face learning and distance learning in order to maintain social distancing. The other challenge for that is transportation. The traditional school district might have 200 buses to transport about 50,000 kids in a normal day uh, to maintain social distancing and transport the same number of kids with far fewer being on a bus at a time. You're looking at going from 50 kids to 15 to 20 kids per bus. Uh, now you're talking about going from 200 buses to some estimates of 2,000 buses to make sure that those same students can get to school in the same amount of time. So those challenges are challenges that school districts will have to face going into the fall. So I'm going to assume for a moment that the current conditions will not be permanent. I think we can safely say that, right? So let's assume also that a vaccine will be developed and will return to some normal, some new normal. When you look at how we're adjusting to the pandemic, what do you think will be forever a part of this new normal? I think many schools and school systems are recognizing that there are some things that are gonna change permanently. Uh, we're in a situation where schools have been forced to use technology. Uh, teachers have been forced to provide uh, instruction uh, via technology in ways that they haven't before. So I think uh, going to a new normal uh, will really look like a hybrid or blended model of providing uh, instruction both face-to-face -face as well as online. Children have already begun to transition to using the internet. My children, for example, have had devices um, for a number of years. My kids don't think twice about asking Siri for the definition of a word or uh, asking Siri for um, support. And many kids in poverty haven't had those opportunities. So at this point, I think our new normal, particularly if we can ensure that students in poverty have access to the technology that my students have had, have access to the internet in ways that they haven't had traditionally, 
then those students as well can begin to learn via technology. They can begin to learn and expose themselves to other parts of the world, other knowledge that they didn't have access to before. So I think our new normal can actually be a positive for students, particularly students in poverty. If Congress makes an investment in their well-being, if Congress makes an investment in the schools that support them uh, and recognizes that that investment will pay dividends for the country in years to come. Uh, And so I'm hopeful that that will be the case and that that this particular Congress and this particular administration are able to do that. So, Ray, you have had a few minutes here of somewhat bleak and outlook on what's happening and understandably so. But is there any good news that you can give us? Is there any silver lining in here that we can point to that puts us in a more positive or hopeful place? Yeah, I think the good news, similar to uh, what I just shared in the last question is, uh, even with a vaccine, I think the good news is we've forced ourselves to think very differently about education and we forced ourselves to think very differently about uh, even human interaction um, and how technology plays a role in many of our lives, particularly as adults. Um, But we haven't as yet caught up with the rest of the world in terms of educating students. We've infused technology into classrooms. We've created new um, opportunities for students to engage uh, with technology. But I think this is speeding up the curve, if you will, of ensuring that education um, and educators uh, make use of technology as part of the educational process. And so I think teachers have received a crash course in how to provide distance learning to students. And I think that will benefit students long term. One of the things that I talk about quite frequently is my students, when they leave the school building, continue to learn each day. My children, when they leave the school building, continue to learn each day. They continue to grow because they've had access to technology and other things that help them grow when they're at home. And now we're affording those same opportunities to students in poverty. Uh, When they leave the school building each day, their learning doesn't have to stop because they can have access to um, the internet, access to technology in ways that will help them grow. And part of that, uh, we're hopeful as part of one of the things that we're working on is uh, working with uh, extensively those who are internet service providers across the country. And our hope is that through the pandemic, they begin to realize that providing free services for students in poverty to access the internet is important for all of our communities, particularly our large cities uh, and those communities that might have a large number of students in poverty. Those communities really need access to the internet that's free, that those students can come home, uh, continue to learn and grow in ways that they haven't traditionally. So we're hopeful that the pandemic, uh, on the opposite end of the pandemic, we've come up with some things, we've applied some things that are common for all, that are now, that have been common for the affluent, that can now be common for all. Well, Ray, um, as we close out, I've got to tell you, you've given us all a lot to think about in ways we never thought about some of these issues before. Difficult to process, but important. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to share some of your insights with us and to have us spend some time thinking about some of the things that you've challenged us with. And just can't tell you enough how much I appreciate the work you're doing, the research you're doing, 
and how it informs policy. So thanks again on behalf of all the listeners. Just thank you for giving us your time today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. One of the things I always like to share is uh, that we're all in the education business, whether we know it or not. And so we're all in the business of ensuring that uh, our young people, no matter where they are, are being educated and and growing up and able to contribute to society long term. So uh, hopefully this pandemic will, will help everyone realize that as well. My name is Harris Cooper. And I am a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke University. Dr. Cooper, could you tell us, so what does that mean that you do every day? I know you're a professor, but in terms of your research and all of the things you do at Duke, give us a sense of what that means that you do every day. Sure. Um, I study research methods. I'm, I'm uh, uh, what's called a meta-analyst. So what I do is I take research that other people have done, large bodies of research, and attempt to combine the results to say what they conclude as a group. In particular, the more interesting part of it is that we actually use statistical techniques to combine the results of separate studies. The other thing that I do is I study applications of social psychology and developmental psychology to educational policy. Um, In particular, I study the relationships between time and learning. But for me, I don't study how a school day is divided into different subject areas, et cetera, but rather how the school day and other opportunities for kids to do academic learning fit into their entire day and their entire school year, uh, even the even the summer as well. So we will study things like the length of the school day and the school year, academically related uh, contexts that kids find themselves in when school's not in session, uh, for example, homework and summer school. And we look at those kinds of things and ask the questions about how learning fits into a child's everyday life, complete 24 hours, and what combinations of school and leisure time and family activities work best for learning. Fascinating. So, so when a researcher such as yourself looks at how the school systems have completely shut down as a result of the pandemic, I guess it has to cause you to start thinking about the lasting systemic changes that we'll experience as a result. Where does that take you? I I guess what I'll ask is, what do you believe will forever be the different ways about the way in which children are taught in the future as a result of what seems like an extended period of dislocation or disruption to the learning process? This certainly is one of the, if not the most serious disruptions to the uh, educational systems uh, in our lifetime, if not in centuries. I'll start out with a hope, and that, and that is, I hope that what we will get from this, one thing that we will get from this, is a new appreciation for schools and teaching as a profession. There's no better way for people to learn how much skill 
and art and science are involved in particular professions than to try to do them themselves. We're not in a position, no one would ever consider being a doctor. No one would ever consider being a carpenter. We, maybe we do those things as hobbies, but as a profession, if you try them, you either give up and concede in admiration uh, or uh, you fail. So, so I think one of the things that could come out of this that's positive is a new appreciation on the part of people for teaching in school. It is both an art and a science. On a more uh, granular level, obviously one of the things that's going to happen uh, deals with our understanding and use of online learning. People are going to realize that online learning can be good for some things, but for other things and other types of courses and other types of material, it's not so good. Um, we will learn that large classes, uh, at least at the college level, maybe in high school as well, large classes, ones that are very devoted to reading, um, are more amenable to use of online learning techniques than are certainly laboratory classes, classes that are very dependent upon discussion between students and between professors, teachers, and students. Another thing that's going to happen is we're going to have placed before us greater understanding of what is referred to as the digital divide. And that's that we're going to have a lot more concern about the achievement gap and how that would be influenced by the use of technology and online learning for instruction. We're, we're going to see that kids who don't have access to online learning or who have only limited access to it, uh, kids whose parents don't speak English at home, whose resources are not as, as prolific as for other children, are going to fall behind quicker than they do when they're in a school setting. I think those are three big take-home things that hopefully the general populace will learn from this experience. So, and that's, uh, I guess, not surprising. It feels somewhat intuitive, but you summarized it very nicely. And I guess the question I would ask is, so how do we narrow that gap? And that may be an obvious, the answer may be obvious as well, but it just seems like we're not on a path where recognition of that problem will necessarily immediately result in a call to arms to try and tackle that problem. So if you extrapolate from your diagnosis of where we are and what that, the implications of that are, what, what do we do to respond to this somewhat obvious realization? Yes, this is not, this is nothing new. It's nothing, if, we're, if you're referring to the digital divide and the achievement gap, yeah. it, it, this is nothing new. We've known this, and it happens every summer. Kids get off for summer. One of the things that we've done a meta-analysis of is summer learning loss, and this is the equivalent of what we're seeing now 
with schools closed, except this is going to be the longest summer break um, ever. <laughs> it's actually a spring, summer, and maybe fall break. Um, and we know that during those times, all kids lose learning. Every kid loses math, right? It, 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 no matter what your, your economic circumstances at home, math is hard to hold on to over the long summer break. When it comes to reading, uh, uh, middle-class kids tend to hold their own, especially in terms of, of uh, reading concepts. Poorer children lose reading as well. And this is all obviously intuitive, especially for kids whose parents don't speak English at home. They have to come back in the fall and learn not only the material again, but refresh themselves with the language of instruction. So this has always been the case. The question now is we're going to see it more dramatically. When kids come back in the fall, hopefully, uh, their teachers are going to see much more dramatic differences between what kids with, with uh, means at home um, still know and what they might have learned and what kids who don't have those same resources. The question of how do we change that deals with the resources that are available. We've got to spend money, basically, is the, is the bottom line. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We've got to spend money. And we've got to spend money to level the playing field. School is a good playing field leveler, though it's also the case that school districts are have resources that are highly a function of the resources that kids have at home as well. But we know that one way to level the playing field is through how we, um, how we support education and what kinds of resources will be available to kids who have less at home to ensure that they have an equal opportunity to excel and their genius and brilliance has as much of an opportunity to be discovered as kids of means. You know, Dr. Cooper, I am depressed and, and that's, not, that's not, directed, not directed at you, but I, I am depressed because we've shown as a nation uh, oftentimes a lack of political will to tackle this type of issue head on. And we get into a lot of esoteric discussions that never get to the heart and soul of it. And you crystallize it very well. And it ought to concern any and everybody that's in a position of leadership and certainly people in policy positions. And it seems like the country loses and we lose. Are there any winners inside of this paradigm? There really, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of who they would be, but are there any? The, the winners are the people who have won already. What it, yeah. you, uh, you know as well as I do, it's the, the part of what the, perhaps the underlying infrastructure of this whole inequality is income inequality. The rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. Yes. So let me ask you to take out a crystal ball, and I know you're not in the crystal ball business because you actually look at data, but roll forward 10 years, what do you think 
the state of education and our educational system looks like. And I realize that if I ask 20 people, I may get 20 different answers, but yes, yours, yes. yours will probably mean more to me than those other 19. What, what do you think that looks like? I'd, I'd be much more comfortable answering that question if I wasn't being recorded because <laughs> okay. I would know that no one would remember what I said <laughs> 10 years from now. Okay. I can tell you what I said 10 years ago and I was exactly right. No, no, I'm to answer such a question again, actually thinking about 10 years ago is it maybe maybe too short a framework, but I can think back to when when I was a kid and what it meant to me, what public education meant, what education was, and it was viewed as a mechanism of social mobility. And what we really have to ask ourselves is whether or not 10 years from now, that's still going to be available. Hmm. Can we convince our fellow citizens that it's in everybody's interest for every child to excel at their maximum capacity? Mm -hmm. And that that's the challenge. I can't tell you whether or not we're going to we're going to meet it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that's that's the the critical aspect that there is self-interest greed and there is enlightened self-interest in which people recognize what's good for their fellow man is good for them as well. I'm I'm going to take what you're saying as. We're at a point where, as a society, as a country, this is a chance where we either reaffirm the values that we have, that we have said we've had in the past, or at least take a different path. So this is a chance for us to look at ourselves and decide who we are, what we stand for, and what we value. And this is one of the things that will be in that mix that will help to determine whether or not this makes it into the value discussion. Amen. Yes. Dr. Cooper, thank you very, very much. Um, let me ask you just uh, one last question. So as a result of the pandemic, have you thought about or has this teased you into what your next big question for research will be? Is there a something on the horizon? And it may just be a spin or a turn on the subject, or it may just be a different question altogether, but has it triggered in your mind some things you want to do a little bit more research on after living through the last few months that we've gone through? Well, very quickly, I'll, I'll mention two things. Obviously, this is a potential opportunity for people to reconsider the school calendar. And we've done work on the school calendar, and my hope is that People will now recognize, hey, wait a minute, this, this long summer break is maybe not in kids' best interest, and it doesn't fit with the way most Americans live anymore. So now, when we've seen the calendar blow up on us, my hope is that some, of, some school districts will decide that next school year should actually start a month early if the pandemic has subsided, and maybe last a, a month longer with different breaks in the calendar uh, for vacations. The other thing that I'm working on at the moment, again, after 
uh, and have been for 40 years, but have, have been a bit reinvigorated, is the importance of homework and the role of homework in kids' education and development as individuals, both in terms of academics and in terms of character, time management, conscientiousness, relationship with parents. There have been a bunch of school districts around the country now who have been duped into believing that homework is of no value at all, and they have taken it away from kids in the earliest grades. My hope is to use research to uh, prevent that from happening and maybe reverse it if possible. Fantastic. I look forward to that research. I, I know I came up in the British system. I'm from the Caribbean. And homework was, you didn't, you didn't really have much choice, but I think it definitely added a tremendous amount to the discipline, some of those attributes that you speak about. And so the good news is they didn't leave us with the choice. They told us we were too young to know what was good for us. And so we were going to do what the adults said we were going to do. And it so happened that they said we were going to do that. So even though we hated it at the time, we're very much appreciative of it now that we're old. And good homework is good homework. Bad homework is bad homework. Let's make sure we, uh, we don't give it a blanket endorsement, but um, that, it, that in fact, um, it can do great things if used properly. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate this. I appreciate you taking the time to share these thoughts with us. I, I know the listeners will get a lot out of it, as did I. So thank you. It's my pleasure. And thanks for inviting me. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group, 2020.